Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Janet Thompson. Janet is the Director of Operations at Hazelcourt Supported Living, a supported living facility in Manchester for young people who are classed as care leavers. Janet, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. You're welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's my pleasure, Janet. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to really understand your take on leadership, first and foremost. And leadership is something which I think it's fair to say is really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and business leaders in all sectors, as well as those in government, having to navigate their way through what is ultimately an unprecedented crisis. Tell me, for somebody working within supported living care if you will such as yourselves how has it been actually navigating the last few weeks and months because I can imagine it has posed some tremendous challenges for yourselves yeah and I think I think the thing is that the 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 client group that we look after which is young people whilst they think they're invincible and a virus that they can't particularly understand doesn't have any effect on them all of a sudden their world has just come collapsing down so the, the biggest emphasis is very much making sure that they're informed and they're up to date and what's expected of them and demonstrating those skills. And we think that something like hand washing is as simple as it is. You know, the emphasis that the young people now has had on the routines and what they should be doing. There's been education, there's been additional sort of creativity. And a lot of our young people suffer immensely from mental health needs and problems that already existed before they added fear and unknown and worry about this virus. Would they be affected? Um, how would it affect a younger person? Is it just an older person's condition? What does it mean day to day to me? And I think the lockdown was particularly difficult when it came to its uh, peak because what do you do with your time? All you've got is a Wi-Fi connection and some well-meaning people that can't give them the answers that they want and they're a little bit more inquiring about what the future holds. And So that time has been absolutely essential um, to focus on the positive, to look at the link between physical and mental health well-being, keeping these young people active, but obviously within the constraints of what a lockdown was, how they should have social distanced, how they should have um, altered their routines, Um, College was a big issue. All of a sudden, how did they carry on with college work when it was essential to the curriculum and the qualifications they were trying to aim for? Self-care in general about getting up out of bed every morning and not lazing in bed and actually getting a purpose for the day was very hard when you, you were struggling to try and find a structure. And then offering some of those opportunities to do extra arts, crafts, sports activities. And how did you do them safely? How did they not mix with other people in the building to, to you know, to the degree that they're used to communally sharing things? So the, the, the challenges were were immense. I and mean, you think they'd be easier with a younger person because they should have some insight into it or, you know, they, were ha- they, were, they weren't at high risk. But that really put some fear into young people about questioning the future and whether they could carry on mentally, not just physically. 
And I suppose it's been difficult from a sort of leader's point of view, trying to sort of provide some reassurance, not just, of course, to those people who you care for, but also staff members as well, because there's a whole new dimension of people management there when you're working with especially youngsters who may have certain um, conditions um, as well, certain anxieties. So I can imagine that's been quite a challenge that you've had to grapple with as well over the recent weeks. Yeah, I mean, the staff group have not been... um they've not been too worried about it because they're quite well informed and we've got a good HR department. We've got managers within that department that took extra mileage to discuss individuals, mm. uh, cases and whether they got affected um, other partners or whether they, they got high risk groups in their families, how they were coming to live here. Um, there were staff that did sleep over and say extended duties so that they didn't have to keep going back to potentially say a young family and exposing them. Um, they took it very seriously that the, the ultimate was to manage the place and make sure we weren't staff shortages. And then staff themselves that have got other health needs that were screened and then came in and said, well, you know, I've got an autoimmune disease. I'm quite high risk. How do I work this? I don't want to give up work. I don't want to go on furlough, but how are you going to look after us and keep us safe? So the anxiety and the unknown, and again, the leadership skills around that, is trying to acknowledge that you too don't have all the answers, but whatever the, whatever comes up and crops up, you will deal with that together as a, um, a an extended workforce with support of good science and, and the, the information we've been given through all the sources. We do um, acknowledge that we've been given a lot of informative information from the local councils, um, Manchester City Council particular centres updates and individual um our HR company, for example, has been extremely good in screening some of our concerns with staff. And then the link on with the families and the, and the relatives and extensions has been a little bit easier because we've felt we've got some of the knowledge and some of the answers that would reassure other people and in turn ripple effects that, that we've all got anxieties and we've not got all the answers, but we can work our way, you know, in that old phrase, we can work it out together. That's exactly right. I mean, we don't have all of the answers, even in leadership positions, do we? There's still a great deal of uncertainty, and we are ultimately fallible during this time. Um, moving on from that, however, Janet, we talked, of course, um, about um, the disruption that it's caused for young people and how they're having to deal with it, particularly those um, under your own wing. And um, mm-hmm. there's been a renewed focus on mental health and well-being during this time, and an important element of that, especially for those suffering from certain sort of mental traumas and anxieties, is routine. We've noticed this week and for the benefit of those tuning into this we're recording on june the 10th 2020 that as of monday there'll be non-essential shops opening to provide something for other people to do provided they socially distance there will also be outdoor cinemas safari parks and zoos reopening so there's more to actually of course go out and do during the lockdown period but one thing that will not be opening at least until September in many cases, is schools after the government decided to U-turn on plans to have all primary school years back in before the uh, the summer term, um, summer term ends. Um, and also secondary schools, colleges, they're also likely not to be back fully until at least September as well. What are your thoughts, Janet, on that and how may that affect youngsters going forward? Um, I think we've already tried to preempt that one. Uh, we're very fortunate that we've always invested a lot in well-being and, and the link of uh, physical and mental health needs uh, to keep people, um, you know, balanced in that respect. So that whatever day-to-day life throws at them, they've got coping mechanisms built in. And that might be, for example, with the schools, like you said, where we've got a little IT suite. We've made sure that every child, young person, has access to a, a laptop. 
with Wi-Fi. They've not worried about, do they have to go and top up Wi-Fi accounts or mobiles or anything? So we've given them the facilities. We've made sure that that's managed and, and you know, sort of policy has, has made sure that we're safe on the internet. And we've got a wellbeing coordinator here that does um, do like a virtual school with them. That if they've not been able to come in and work with them, um, then they've had them on uh, virtual learning, on e-learning. Um, they're very savvy, some of our young people, with electronics and, and e-learning, so they've done exceptionally well. And we've got our ESOL teacher that's been working with some of our other students that, that have needed the additional support from outside colleges, and they've done that in Zoom and Team and all sorts of things to keep them in touch. So technology's played a good part in all that. And as to the other things that, sort of, you know, uh, have seemed immense restrictions to our young people not being able to get out and about. Um, we've previously had a, a football pitch put in with a multi-purpose court where we can do circuit training, all at social distancing. So they've all had little routines of exercise um, on the premises, a little urban gym in the garden, uh, as much as we've got a gym inside and we've not used that. Um, we've used the urban gym that's outside with all the apparatus that they've been able to do at a distance. Um, and, and we've just aimed on those anxieties to preempting how people cope with these. And if there's been a restriction, we've had to be very creative about how can you fulfil that restriction. So, again, they've worried about shopping, they've worried about budgeting, they've worried about getting the money and the, the, their allowances um, that's usually put in a bank and how do you go out to, to get that if you can't go on public transport and We've worked around creatively while we can solve that in this way and that way. Um, so although it has still been very stressful to them, um, once I think you get an alternative and a coping mechanism and you can work through that, we've minimised some of the impact, although it's still a real day-to-day -day challenge. How do I have my normal life? And like you said earlier, what is very simple for some people is, is the substance of keeps them mentally and physically well because they've got other anxiety disorders or mental health needs or, you know, what wouldn't affect us as, as mentally impacted on the young people. Um, I think if you use the stir-crazy technique that it, it just being in four walls has absolutely made people feel imprisoned and their anxieties have, have been affected even more. It's about having that human contact and, and working through that before people's gone to an extreme, mm -hmm. and that some of those behaviours again, um, if you can preempt what that impact is on somebody, we've been very creative. And it might sound silly that you know not everybody's got a games console, but we actually had one that you know we could do um, other games that made people think as though, well, I can still do a bit of sport, I can still you know take a bit of escapism limit how much time they spend on all these apparatuses and break the day up but it's been an incentive to get up and do stuff because we've planned the day a little bit more structured so they don't feel as though one day blends into another and it's quite easy to feel like that um, in a lockdown where essentially what you can do is um, severely restricted um, mm -hmm. and with regards to the uh, the future first and foremost uh, before we focus on the uh, the long term Janet what I just wanted to ask was in terms of what's going to be the new normal and what's going to be deemed COVID secure are you satisfied that Hazelcourt Supported Living knows what's expected of it as an organisation for things to continue to operate as vaguely normal? Yeah I, I think there's enough information out there that has relied on a little bit of common sense to fit it to your environment mm. of what's going on. Um, I think the client group in our section needs just that bit more education and 
you know, the instant reaction is, well, why should I do that? The question, why? Not let me consider it and talk about it. Some, some, some of our young people haven't got that maturity to say. And, and they're very influenced by what they see on the television and all these things going on in the world where they say, well, why can't we be like that? So I think the education and the support in that sense, again, is we have some very strict criteria that we have to keep to. And um, the only way moving forward is if we don't create another wave of this outbreak and that you have to still keep in, and, you know, things have not gone back to normal. Um, you're not going to go back to college just yet. There is no indication when that will be. Or it might be, you know, post-up post to September. So they, they are aware of, of, of the day-to-day things, but I think it's about repetition and reminding people and saying this is, we're being led by our governments and our professionals and, and the health professionals um, that will guide us day to day and we have to be flexible and that's hard sometimes for young people that want rigid statements of you. So we, we are sure of what, what needs to happen. Um, we are aware of, of you know what, what restrictions might be being lifted even you know from next Monday onwards. But to adapt them to make sure they fit into our environment and say well that's actually what it meant in this, mm. this environment. There's quite a few examples. For example, some of our young people are, um, you know, are quite religious and they want to know when they can go back to church and when they can do things like that. And we can only guide them according to what the government's recommendation is about communal worship. And, you know, that's just one example. Um, And I think they fear that if it's not mentioned, does that mean it just carries on as normal? So some of the things that are priority to our young people, um, you know, and not necessarily other people's priorities and we mm. just have to make sure that we keep up to date with everything and supply them with the information and then if, if they get it wrong then look at why and how and keep reflecting on how we're trying to adapt this service as changes happen and what we can do to open up more um, opportunities and yet not breach the law and not obviously um, you know very um, political at the moment about people wanting to demonstrate and protest uh, about other issues in the world. Our young people are very influenced by that. And we've had those talks now about don't join in on things like that that you might have very um, clear perspective on and views on. We're not stopping and curbing your opinions, but just stop and think what your actions are and whether that's the right thing to do. And, you know, um, every, everything um, impacts us in, in, in a very personal thing, but look at the bigger picture of, of living in this sort of facility. And, and affecting other people that live around you that, that are, um, you know, your next door neighbour type of thing in the, in the supported living um, establishment. It's keeping the communication channels open as well as being adaptable and flexible, isn't it? And all of that is hugely important um, in terms of overall yeah. leadership. And leadership is fundamentally what we need as we continue to move through the, uh, the pandemic and toward the mm-hmm. new normal. And if we think about the future of Hazel Court supported living now, Janet, just before we do wrap things up, what do you actually envision the next year or so holding for yourself and for the organisation? And most importantly, what do you hope to achieve during that time? Um, well, just prior to the lockdown, we'd um, planned a new rebranding of the service and to look at um, a branding model. And we, we'd redesigned ourselves with a new um, service user-led motto that was Believe and Achieve. And that campaign that it's only a small company again, we've done a business plan for the next 12 months around what do our young service leaders need. They come to 18, they're particularly still anxious about the future, and at 18, what do they do? 
they're meant to go on to fully dependent, independent living and some of them are not ready and some of them are technically told they have to become homeless uh, because this sort of facility is finished at supported living and what do you do when you turn 18? So some of our ambitions and scope is around post-18 with people that may still have ongoing mental health needs or social needs, um, looking at provisions of one-bedded flats for people to move into full independence um, we've also got part of our business plan looking at the supported model that we've got that might branch into HMO where people are obviously still in group shared living but they're, they're technically in a different sort of housing route. We've also considered uh, expanding uh, the home and uh, the, the site that we've got with some of the satellite houses that we support and that might be just very local to where we are in Hazel Court in, in Manchester but that we have some provision for learning disability and that similar people of similar needs can can, can live and share houses together. Um, we've also considered some mother and baby unit aspects that look at what do uh, young people 16 to 18 uh, need from the community to support uh, a new baby or a young parent and parenting classes and supportive visitors uh, visits and what's what's the need out there. Um, generally expanding the housing project, so Hazel Court 15 beds at the moment, and although we're not going to build an extension, we might buy some local properties to extend somebody from larger group living into smaller group living until they get to independence. Um, so there's been a, a scope of business plan there that we've had in mind for you know quite some months and then inevitably um, our rebranding so that we have um, a theme around uh, believing and achieving for every young person that leaves our care, that they've got something to look forward to as aftercare. And um, just just acknowledging what the area needs, um, working through Manchester Council as to what young people need so that they don't become the next homeless statistic. Um, and doing really, I suppose, a one-stop stop at whatever stage of illness or need or social need or mental health need that you've got that will have something to cater for both your housing, your education, your emotional, your social and your general physical needs um, as, a, as a good package really um, and being competitive and being good value for money because we acknowledge at the end of the day that every budget has a restriction. The councils and uh, local government will equally have its challenges, particularly as we come out of this um, virus and COVID-19. So we have to be good value for money as well and provide a quality service. So a lot of our infrastructure has been built around quality and what you get for money and what we can offer as a, a small independent provider. We've got some good creative leaders um, We've certainly got an entrepreneur sort of um, uh, director with myself. And uh, again, the experience in the company, um, I've been over 30 years as a mental health nurse. Uh, I think we've got a really good insight into what people need and a bit of creativity, how we get that done. So we've got some quite ambitious uh, plans and uh, we're, we're doing all right up to now. But unfortunately, when we got to March and everything had to change, it's not been shelved, it's just been temporarily delayed. And I will come out and get a lot of that done and promoted as and when um, we can. 
Let's certainly hope that those hopes can be borne out over the year, the next few months uh, for sure, Janet, and it doesn't put the, a stop to any of the good work that Hazel Court's doing. And, you know, I think it would actually be fantastic, given how informative it's been hearing about some of these initiatives today, to actually catch up in the coming months just to see how things are getting on and what's changed perhaps in the time between when maybe we have a better idea of what the new normal will really look like. Yeah, yeah, that'd be ideal, yeah. And hopefully... Um you know, people are starting to come back to work for the people that were helping me to get new properties and estate agents and solicitors that were doing the legal work for us. And the staff then are not restricted and they can be creative in, you know, getting houses decorated and furnishings and going out and seeking those opinions from young people where they were jointly involved in making sure the next project was right. Um, a collaborative approach that we'll be able to get back into the swing of it all and move things on. Let's certainly hope so. And um, it's been a real pleasure, Janet, um, having you on uh, the programme um, today with us. Thank you ever so much for taking the time um, again to come on the air. And it's a shame we don't have more time. Otherwise, we could talk about it well into the evening, I'm sure. But in the meantime, until we do touch base again, please do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet, for sure. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Janet Thompson speaking, Director of Operations at Hazel Court Supported Living. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City. But most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition. And that came after his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the Old Old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. I hope you enjoyed listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Jeff. And that is coming up next. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be <laughs> playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has 
been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and he's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over fifteen years. I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you just think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood. And, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players and of course they become your friends who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself was it more was it Peters I think probably well I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did again mm-hmm. again extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters who was a fantastic player and some, as far as Martin's concerned I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, football team in any walk of life to be successful and it's quite evident I was in the motor trade for a long time as well selling car warranties to car dealerships and you could almost tell when you walked into the business uh, in a, many of the car dealerships you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all and so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, oh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and, of course, your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, 
maybe over this trip by the time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn suit and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life and my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh... A, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it, but looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it, only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, be playing. In, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green so mm. I, I had an impact of thinking I, at that stage I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think Mm. I was just happy to be I'd be involved in the squad initially. Um, not at all. I didn't. You're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really. Looking back, out, out. So I never really felt. People talk about pressure a lot, and it's there. And people, players talk about. People talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he moved one or two players out. The squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, 
top quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that I'll show you. He got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we had some great players, but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players. Um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course, I jokingly say, "Yes, I was just about to to shoot to score the goal, and I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch.' So that's uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke and make a joke about that, and saying, "Yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited, but just had a, look, had a glance round, you know." Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one, which I won't bore you in two. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a jersey, or Channel Lines, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can think, tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a at a dinner in the you know, Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions, and then all of a sudden, I heard of somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is- uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but then I, again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, laugh, if if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think, um, you, you were a young man when... See, this happened when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck 
struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke, and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, uh, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitches, people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a, in a natural leader? Um. Well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just... Luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely leading. So he'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely. Mm. You've got to take him as the first example. But Klopp's only done this for a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they've they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they. Uh, Ron Green was yeah. The answer, straightforward answer, is yes. Um, That's good they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back. Uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it 
that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership, but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were very fortunate and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that... So many. Yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding and, uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody... And going back from an earlier earlier question for me, the um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago. Of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't I, when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great players. We have some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you we wouldn't have been as ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. The word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes you know, together, everyone achieves more. And that, that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single mind single mindedness, dedication, Dedication to the job, um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time—it's a huge part of your life. But if you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not. Uh, they will not switch off for for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over the go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, 
Goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.